Loving your neighbor is difficult and was definitely something that if you, if you saw the movie that's on the screen there, Grand Torino, uh, it depicted this kind of neighborly love that was difficult to come by for Walt Kowalski, who was played uh, by Clint Eastwood. And this is a great movie. It's um, one of those that uh, people continue to talk about after they see it. It was not only directed by Clint Eastwood, but it was also what he says is the last movie that he is acting in. But just an incredible kind of movie that shows uh, what it means to live in a neighborhood, what it means to be a neighbor. And the movie really, for the most part of the movie, he is a terrible neighbor. Uh, His neighborhood has changed. He lives in the Highland Park area of Detroit, Michigan. And his neighborhood was once this uh, white middle class neighborhood where uh, everyone kept their lawns nice and neat and trimmed and everyone knew each other. They would see each other out on the front porches and it was just this golden age of suburbia. But things began to change as we can see are continuing to change in Detroit, Michigan. But things were changing in Kowalski's life, specifically with his wife dying. And as he was trying to nurse the wounds of that and nurse the wounds of being a Korean War veteran and just all kinds of problems and challenges in his life, he was a man full of complete hatred, racism, bigotry, you name it. He had it in his life. And as he looked around at his neighborhood and he saw the transitions and the changes that were taking place, he just hated the people who were coming into his neighborhood. Primarily, these were people who were uh, Chinese. They were a part of the Hmong people as they were moving in for jobs in the Detroit area. And the people who moved in right next door to him were the Hmong, this Hmong family. And two of the people in this family, it was a multi-generational kind of family, but two of them he really began to interact with. Although there was the grandmother who would sit out on the front porch and chew tobacco, uh, much like uh, Kowalski would do, he would look over and there was just kind of this spitting competition that would take place that was there. But he got to know Sue and and Tao, two of the younger ones in this particular family. And as they would uh, continue to interact, there was still nothing really but hatred there that was going on uh, there in the neighborhood. Uh, But he began to to interact with them as Tao was being beaten up and humiliated, uh, primarily because he was not joining the local gang. The other kids in the neighborhood and even in his own family were pushing him to join one of these gangs. Well, in the midst of all of this, there's also another thread that comes through this, and it is the priest, uh, this priest who is just out of seminary, and uh, there's a neat interaction that takes place between Kowalski and you know this hardened, tough guy and this brand new seminarian who has his first parish. And uh, Kowalski's wife was uh, one of the regular attenders at this particular church, and she told the priest that she wanted to make sure, as she was dying, she wanted to make sure that Walt would come to confession. That was like her dying wish, that he would one day come to confession and learn about forgiveness and learn about grace and what it meant to be in the love of God. Kowalski would have nothing to do with this, and he talked down to the priest, but the priest kept coming back and knocking on his door and trying to love on him and trying to get through to him. Well, uh, the story just continues on, and uh, towards the end of the movie, uh, there's this great scene where uh, one of the things uh, that uh, Tao ended up doing, he was being challenged uh, to, to come into this gang and really forced into it, and the initiation was to steal Kowalski's Grand Torino. And uh, you can see a a picture of it there. And he kept it all shined up. It was nice and neat. It was the pride and joy of his life. 
So Tao comes in to steal the Gran Torino out of his driveway and ends up just fumbling and messing it all up. And Kowalski catches him and uh, makes him really his own prisoner. He is going to have to do penance for Kowalski. In the midst of that penance and the punishment that's there, Kowalski really uh, starts to get a tender heart for Tao, wanting to protect him and to teach him the ways of life and what he calls being a man. And uh, as all this goes on, he ends up saving Tao from uh, really getting killed by this particular gang. And so this love for neighbor begins to develop. And it's a, a very wonderful story about the confusion and the challenge and the difficulty of loving neighbor. And it truly is difficult. As you think about it today, in your own life, think about your neighbors. Maybe it is the neighbor in your own house. Maybe it's your spouse, or maybe it's a child, or maybe it's a mom or a dad, or someone in your family. Maybe it's uh, you know, your weird uncle in your estranged family that is always very difficult to love, especially at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Maybe it's the neighbor that's down the street who who doesn't tend to the yard, who doesn't do things that you feel like he or she ought to do. Maybe it's a neighbor that is uh, far away in a distant land whom you feel is a direct threat to your life today. It's not always easy. Paul uh, addresses this in his text and gives us some ideas about what it means to love our neighbors. And I, I want to invite you to look there at that text again that Saber read earlier. Actually, Saber number two. Uh, or three, actually, it's Saber the third, right? There's fourth. Saber the fourth, uh, read earlier. Fifth, I'm sorry. This goes way back. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> There's a lot of Sabres out there. But if you look there in your bulletin, or preferably in your Bible, in Romans chapter 13, Paul writes to the church at Rome, and he realizes they are having a challenge loving their neighbors, primarily because their neighbors are trying to kill them. They are coming after them to persecute them for following Jesus. And so Paul is hearing about all of this and he writes to them and says there is nothing more important that you can do than to love your neighbor. And so he really starts out by saying this is your job. If you look earlier, if you, if you have a Bible and look up earlier than verse 8 in this particular chapter in Romans 13, Paul is writing about economics, and he's writing about giving to the church, he's writing about giving to God, and what it is that you're to do with your money. And here in verse uh, 8, he's saying, oh, no one anything. Paul's um, economic advice is, don't get into debt. Don't owe your neighbor anything except for love. Love one another. For the, love, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law and the commandments. So Paul is writing here, they have an obligation. And it's not just a one-time obligation, it's a perpetual obligation. They are to love their neighbor. And the word he uses here for neighbor is a very universal kind of, of, of word. It's not just love someone in your family or love someone in your friendship circle. It is to love everyone, even outside of your own religion. Owe oh, nothing to anyone except for love. He goes on to say, you know, he quotes the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. They're all summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul is saying, you could, you could try to do all these things, but if you don't have love in there, you're really missing the whole point. You are not fulfilling the law that God has given us. Love your neighbor. This is what you are to do. 
uh, was watching football, and we heard about, uh, I guess, uh, some of the big games this weekend. Hopefully you had a chance uh, to watch uh, those games and just to you know, get back in the, the swing of things, especially with football. But as I was uh, watching I, and thinking about this, uh, this sermon, I was thinking about how I often, whenever I was playing football, really didn't know what to do. Uh, I still don't know what to do. But when I was out there on the field, I, you know, I was about the same size as everybody else in my elementary school when I was playing YMCA football. I was skinny, but I was tall, and, and I could make my way around and you know, not uh, get too hurt out there on the field. Uh, when I got into middle school, things began to change. Uh, my voice didn't change, really hadn't changed completely, but it didn't change until you know, about the eighth grade, and I didn't really get... And I, you know, it was about uh, college until I started to get meat on my bones. I was just way too skinny. So I was on special teams, and I played some on quarterback. But I was like sixth string quarterback. I was, uh, you know, playing bench most of the time. And I remember uh, when we were in, involved in one game, I think this was in seventh grade, um, you know, I, I just was used to kind of kneeling over there on the sideline and usually didn't even have my helmet on. Uh, we were over playing games, you know, with the other six stringers. We were not even really paying any attention to the game. Well, obviously, the first string guy got hurt and he had to come out. And then the second string guy got hurt and he had to come out. So it got all the way down to the sixth string. And the coach was looking pretty desperate. And I hear this, Henson, get your helmet on. It's time to get in the game. And I remember going out to the huddle. And I remember the quarterback, he was uh, calling the play. I remember thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> I mean, why would I need to learn the plays when I'm on the sixth string? Maybe that's why I was on the sixth string. But I remember going and getting on the line and kneeling down, getting ready to, to take off and to run, thinking, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. And I remember just kind of running out there and looking around, and luckily it wasn't coming to me, but it was so embarrassing. The coach pulled me back out. And... Uh, I don't know if he found the seventh string that day, but obviously he didn't need me. I didn't know what to do. As I think about Christians these days and throughout history, how many times have we gone uh, about our Christian lives not knowing what to do? Not knowing what play God has given us? This was Paul's whole point. You think you're following the law? You're missing it completely. Love your neighbor. And he quotes Jesus. Jesus is quoting uh, the Shema. He, it is this loving God, loving neighbor. This is what it's all about. I wonder today, do you know what to do as a Christian? Do you know what to do in your life? Well, really, it's an obligation for us. We are obligated to love our neighbor. Who is your neighbor today? Well, I mentioned already, you have a na- your closest neighbor is right inside of your own family. Your closest neighbor is your spouse. How's that going? Your children, your parents, your grandparents, your extended family. You just kind of work out from there. Then you could look at the people who live on either side of you and you begin to think, ooh, that doesn't look too good. I'm supposed to love, love him. I mean, I love staring out the window trying to figure out what they're trying to do and you know, talking about them and all that. I'm supposed to love them and, and then loving other people in the city and loving people at work. What about school for the students that are here? Did you know that's your job? That one of the key reasons that God has you in that particular classroom and and around those particular people is so that you can love them as God has loved you? Well, it's an obligation. It is something that is never fulfilled either. It's that feeling, you know, when you owe someone money 
I'm looking around to see if I owe any of y'all any money. When, when, I, when you owe someone money, you dodge them. You know, you see them coming down the street and you decide, well, I'm going to go the other way because I still haven't paid back that debt. Or you see the caller ID come on the phone and you realize, okay, I, I guess uh, I'm not going to answer that because I know why they're calling. They want to get some money from me. And even if they don't ask, it's that uncomfortable feeling of, well, I know I owe you some money and I, I haven't paid that money back yet. Paul says that's how we're to be with other people. Whenever we see anyone, We're to look at them and go, you know what? I owe him a debt of love. I owe her a debt of love. And it is something that never ends. You never get finished with loving your neighbor. Ever. And this is the challenge, is it not? To be able to do our job. Well, Paul not only tells us what the job is, but he tells us what we're supposed to wear. If you look back here at the the end of this, uh, really down here towards the, uh, in the second paragraph. He says, besides this, you know what time it is. And he goes on to talk about living um, in, in this particular time. And he tells them to put on the armor of light and to let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery or licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that picture of putting on some, some brand new clothing. Take off what you're wearing and if you're going to live in the last day in the way that God wants you to do, if you're going to do your job, you've got to have the right uniform on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul writes in other places about what this looks like. In, in Colossians, he writes to the church at Colossae, chapter 3, in verse 12, he says, uh, what you're to wear and what that clothing of Christ looks like, it is compassion, it is kindness, it is humility, It is gentleness and it is patience. Those are the threads to the clothing of Christ that is to be upon them. Paul's saying, look at yourself and see what you're wearing. Have you, today, have you put on the clothing of Christ? It's all about the uniform and the help that it gives. Uh, We were at Universal uh, Studios um, (laughs) this past summer. (laughs) I was going to say which one is Jenny, but I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, and I'm going to go for this kind of beard as well. But we were at, at Hogwarts Castle Universal Studios. We'd gone down for the CBF uh, convention this past summer. We decided to go, and um, as we were going around, uh, we noticed that there was this guy who really wanted to be Professor Dumbledore. And uh, there he is. He was wandering around, and as you would see him, in his costume, he really doesn't look like him, but uh, he's trying to look like him. And as you'd see him wandering around, you kind of got the idea that this guy, he really didn't have a life, you know? He re- this was his life. This, this was his calling. And, uh, and he just loved walking around. I mean, he never broke character. I saw him a whole bunch of times. You always try to throw him off a little bit and say, hey, how's it going or something. But he just, you know, he walked around looking like Professor Dumbledore. And so as you would see him, you recognize this was him in character. There was something special for him. You know that every morning when he woke up, he couldn't wait to get to Universal, put on his uniform, and live out this identity. This is what made him. This was the right clothing for the right job for him. I'll get that picture off of there. Um, Jenny wasn't making fun of him at all. Uh, But this is what we are to do as well. God has given us a job to do. And He's given us a specific uniform to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put on that uniform that we're to wear to work every day. 
This past week, as you think about your week, did you put on Jesus Christ as you went about your day? Maybe you found yourself yelling at people and doing terrible things and, um, you know, just uh, not living out the Christ-like life in this past week. It, it is so easy for us to do. But the problem is that we walk out the door with just ourselves. And we recognize that we can't love anybody. Sometimes we can't even love ourselves. And what God has given us is this wonderful costume, this wonderful attire. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it look like? Well, going back to what Paul told the Colossians, it looks like compassion. You see any compassion in your life? Is that one of the threads that is on you today? Compassion? What about kindness? It really goes with compassion. Are you finding yourself to be kind? Or are you just the mean ogre, the, uh, kind of the Kowalski of, uh, of, uh, of your workplace and of your family? What about humility? Are you finding that in your life? Do people see humility in your life? What about gentleness? And what about patience? Patience is all something we struggle for and dare not ever pray for, right? But those are the threads of the clothing that is to be upon us. But then it's also a matter of knowing when to start. It's not just what the job is and what we're supposed to wear. It is knowing when to start. Paul writes to them. He is truly believing that this could be the last day. I mean, every day could be the last day. It's the day that Jesus could be coming back to establish His kingdom on earth. And so Paul is is writing with great urgency. Realizing this could be at any time. And he says, besides this, you know what time it is. How it is now the moment for you to wake up from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first became believers. So Paul says, you better do it now. Don't wait to go and to love your neighbor. Don't wait to do the things that God has given you to do. Because you may not have a tomorrow. Now is the time. I remember when I was doing a men's study several years ago. Uh, there was a great book, and I still recommend it. It's Patrick Morley's Man in the Mirror. And it was a Bible study series that I was doing with a men's group that I was leading. And one of the chapters in the book was called The Dash. And it talked about on the tombstone. If you ever you know, look at a tombstone, and you notice there's a birth date on there. there you know, the day that you were born into this world. And that's a day that you celebrate probably every year. And then you, you can kind of figure there will be a day that you die. And uh, we don't know for certain when that's going to be, but uh, we can figure if we live a healthy life, 80 to 100 or maybe even more, that date will go on there as well. And when that date goes on there, there is the dash that is in between those two dates. And this particular chapter dealt with that dash. What does that dash represent in your life? I mean, that's all you have. When it comes time to go, All you have is what took place in between your birth and your death. But you see, sometimes we're just waiting around. Sometimes we think we'll get around to doing the things that God has called us to do. Especially when it comes to loving our neighbor. The time is now, as Paul tells us. I wonder, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for in your life? To begin truly loving your neighbor. And maybe you already are. Maybe you're doing it really well, but you find your your challenges just like all of us do. Well, there are plenty of opportunities for us to do this. You can do it. We've already talked about at work. You can love your neighbors at work. Sometimes people are competing with you or people are angry and they're mistreating you at work. And what God has said is to love your neighbor. 
It's not going to be easy, but love your neighbor at work. There's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity at home to go home from church today and to love your closest neighbor. There's an opportunity for you to love Tuesday at school. When you go back to school and there are kids who make fun of you or say things to you that just completely bring you down to be able to love them with the love of Christ. But also in our community, we have great opportunities. And I am constantly excited about the ways that we're loving uh, our neighbors right here in this community. You can do it through Meals on Wheels. Um, we had uh, someone new, Jamie Woolley, signed up for a, a route. And she came to do route number five, and it's a, it's a pretty easy, quick route. And she came back and she said, I want, I want another route. I, I want to be able to do this every week. And I said, Jamie, you sure you're going to do this every week? She said, yeah, uh, I can do it on my lunch hour. So she signed up for route number two, which is not the easiest route to do. I'll say that because I don't see her here today. But she signed up for route number two, and so she's, she's doing that every week. Uh, Meals on Wheels is a great way to love your neighbor. Uh, going to the adult daycare center is a great way to love your neighbor. There are wonderful opportunities there to be able to do that. Senior lunches twice a week right out here. There are neighbors that come and sit around the, the table and eat lunch together, and there's an opportunity to love them. Dress for success, the veterans' home, the lighthouse, the list goes on and on. They're just waiting for you to love them. Well, I didn't tell you how Grand Torino ends. Maybe you've already seen it. If not, I guess I'll, I'll kind of spoil it for you. But there is a scene at the end of the movie where the priest finally gets through to Kowalski. And he sits down with him and begins to talk to him. And uh, Kowalski's already confessed. And by the way, he didn't really have that much to confess. It wasn't all that interesting. But he kind of cleansed his heart, purged it a little bit. And as he confessed his sins, he begins to talk to the priest. And he says, um, There's, there is really nothing that can be done for this family as long as that gang is still in the neighborhood. And so the priest says, what are you going to do about it? And you, in true Clint Eastwood style, you get this tough voice and this grimace on his face and something along the lines of, uh, they'll never know what hit him. And so you get the idea that Kowalski, he's planning. You know, he's always going around like this in the movie, uh, pointing his finger and sometimes his gun at other people. But he goes and he thinks for a while. And we also find at this point in the movie that he is uh, more than likely dying of lung cancer. He's coughing up blood and having a difficult time. And so he puts his, his plot together of what he's going to do. And he goes to this uh, gang headquarters in the neighborhood where all these guys live. And he, he goes and he gets out of his white beat-up truck and walks up just like Clint Eastwood always does. And he, he has a uh, cigarette in his mouth and he looks up at the house and he begins to uh, call out expletives to these guys and to start yelling at them. And they begin to come out. But not only do they start coming out and getting angry and getting their guns out, people all on the street start looking out as well because he is yelling so loud he wants everybody to hear. And so there are these threats that go back and forth. And then all of a sudden, Kowalski reaches into his jacket, which is something especially you know in the Old West you never do, reaches into his jacket and begins to pull out um, a lighter, what turns out to be a lighter to light a cigarette. But we get the idea he wants them to understand he's going for his gun, and so they don't give him a chance at all. They begin firing on him and killing him. We later learn at the end of the movie the whole idea was so that everybody around could see and be witnesses to the murder that took place there, thus getting the gang in jail and getting them out of the neighborhood. It's a beautiful picture of Christ-like love. The difficulty of loving neighbor 
is finally consummated in laying down one's life for neighbor. And that is what Christ shows us as well. Jesus laid down His life for us. We are neighbor. Let us pray.